going to be from the Gospel according to John chapter 21. I'm going to pick up at verse 15. It's page 907. While you're turning there, this is the end of uh, choir and a cappella for the season. They're taking a summer break, but there will be ensembles through the year. And if you'd like to be a part of an ensemble, Pamela's right back there. I could use you talking to her, so that'd be great. Little pieces of music like that are just beautiful. That really worked out well. So we're in John chapter 21, verse 15 through 19. Let me set this setting here. Our Lord has been crucified. He was buried. Now he's resurrected. And there are appearances. He's coming and meeting his disciples in these resurrection appearances. This is one of the last ones. The men have gone fishing. Go figure. Guys going fishing, right? But the men have gone fishing. And Jesus sets a scene that looks just like, in many ways, just like the courtyard where Peter had denied Jesus. Remember Peter? Lord, I'll never deny you. I'll lay down my life for you. No, Peter, tonight you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And sure enough, Peter denied Jesus three times around a charcoal fire in a courtyard. And now Jesus sets up the same kind of scenario. There's a charcoal fire, as it says back up in verse 9 or something like that. There's a charcoal fire. And Jesus is setting the scene where he is going to restore Peter. And he will give Peter the promise that, yes, he will finally lay down his life for Jesus. And so starting in verse 15. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. That was number one. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? It wasn't the language change in the Greek. It's the fact that Jesus is dredging up Peter's failure. You failed three times. Now on the third time, I ask you again, do you love me? And he's grieved that he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, 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 I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to him, follow me. Yes, Peter, you promised you would lay down your life for me. You've been restored and you will do just that. So keep that restoration of Peter in mind in the back of your head as we turn now to 1 Chronicles chapters 6 through 9. Yes, 6 through 9. We will get through it. Trust me. Be patient. As we continue our series through 1 and 2 Chronicles, reclaim, revive, reform, and return. So we've dealt with the first five chapters. We've talked about different episodes in there. Now we come to chapters 6 through 9. And it begins then with this long chapter, chapter 6, on the Levites. And so the very first part are who are the sons of Levi, the sons of Levi, Gershom, Kohath, and Merari. And it goes through and lays out who they are and their descendants. Notice that it comes back to the exile. Look at chapter 6, verse 15. 
Jehozadak went into exile when Yahweh sent Judah and Jerusalem into exile by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And then the chronicler goes on to lay out the genealogy of Levi. And then, down in verse 30, begins the rehearsal of the functions of Levi. So verse 31. These are the men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of Yahweh after the ark rested there. They ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting until Solomon built the house of Yahweh in Jerusalem and they performed their service according to their order. And so it lays out this division of labor. labor. Here are the different ministries they were a part of. They were involved in the temple worship, even the high priest, down to verse 49. Even the high priest and his family led in the sacrifices. But Aaron and his sons made offerings on the altar, burnt offering, and on the altar of incense for all the work of the most holy place to make atonement for Israel, according to all that Moses, a servant of God, had commanded. So the beginning of chapter 6, this is who Levi is. In the middle of chapter 6, Here's what they were called to do. And then starting at verse 54, this is where they lived. It's the dispersion of Levi. These are their dwellings, verse 54. These are their dwellings according to their settlements within their borders. And so they settled throughout all the land of Israel. They go in and have houses and cities in every tribe of Israel except for one. But they are throughout all the land and people of Israel, from one end to the other. And then starting in chapter 7 and 8, there are more tribes. And so very quickly, the sons of Issachar tells you who those are. Verse, chapter 7, verse 6, the sons of Benjamin. Chapter 7, 13, the sons of Naphtali. Verse 14, the other sons of Manasseh. There were two half-tribes or half-tribes here. Verse 20, the sons of Ephraim. Verse 30, the sons of Asher. Verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, back to Benjamin again, because the chronicler wants to bring us to Saul, which he will talk more about in a further chapter. And then he summarizes all this genealogy with chapter 9, verse 1. So all Israel was recorded in genealogies, and these were written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. So that leads up to the exile. What about after the exile? What about people coming back? Well, that comes then verse 2. Now the first to dwell again in their possessions in their cities were Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and some of the people of Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh. And it lays out who those were that came back, the first wave of those who came back. And lo and behold, starting in verse 10 through verse 34, is the putting back into place the centrality of the ministerial clan, the Levites. And it lays again down who they are, what their functions were, and how dispersed they were. So what I've read to you in the Gospel according to John, and what I've summarized heavily, and read to you in 1 Chronicles 6 through 9... It is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, give us, good Lord, the attention to focus, the ears to hear, and the heart to embrace this, your faithful word. Amen. You may be seated.
Aren't you glad I just summarized all that genealogy? Because your, your eyeballs were already glassing over, and I was just summarizing. So here we're back to 1 Chronicles 6. Now we're at 6 through 9, and there are sermon notes on the back of your worship guide. If you uh, don't know that, if you're just visiting, there's uh, sermon notes on the back of your worship guide, places to write notes, there's some questions at the end. Well, I have a story to tell you. Some of you know this story. You saw me post something about it recently. There was once this 10-year-old little boy who began to convince himself that he was unloved by his mom and his dad. He was an only child. Began to convince himself he was unloved by his mom and dad. And there were reasons for that. They were all logical. If you'd asked his 10-year-old brain, he'd have told you all the reasons. The climactic moment came when at 10, he got into a very harsh spat with his mother. There was a slap involved. Angry, harsh words were involved, and the poor boy knew for certain he was unloved. And so he went to his room and wrote one of those, um, I'm sorry, Mom, that I've been a a pain in your life. I'm I'm leaving, right? One of those. Ten-year-old note. You understand that, right? And he left the note, and then he ran. And he ran as far as he could run, a mile and a half. Hey, ten years old, that's pretty good. And he gets up under a bridge, and as he's up under the bridge, back up there in the crook of this bridge, he's feeling miserable, he's feeling sorry for himself, he just knows he's unloved, and he knows his mom and dad don't care anything for him. Little little to his knowledge, what he didn't know was that his mom and dad found the note and were pretty alarmed, and mom was already running around the countryside in her car looking for him with tears streaming down her face. She just happens to show up under the bridge in her car. Her windows are up. And the little boy sees that his mom is crying. He knows what she's doing now. She's looking for him and she's crying. Well, that doesn't compute. If I'm not loved by her, then why would she be crying? And all of a sudden, he becomes clear-headed. Oh, man, that's terrible. I am loved. Mom, mom, well, the windows are up so mom can't hear and she's bawling her eyeballs out as she takes off and the little boy finally comes to his senses and says, no, I am loved. And he runs back that long mile and a half trek. It was a long trek. And he gets home and he runs back into the arms of love that were always there and open for him. Now, my friends, that story Something like that is in this long and wordy section of 1 Chronicles as it invites us to become clear-headed and to find our way back into the arms of love that have always been there. And so the first point is this reminder of culpability. It's, I'm going to jump around a little bit here, so just stay with me and keep your Bibles open to 1 Chronicles 6-9. But the reminder of culpability, we read it there back in chapter 6 and verse 15 as, as the writers, the editors, laying out the list of who begot whom and who was his father whom and all that stuff. Then it just subtly brings it in in verse 15. And Jehozadak, who was a priest, went into exile. When? Well, when, when Yahweh sent Judah and Jerusalem to exile by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Well, that's there. It just drops in your lap. And you start thinking, well, why would he send them into exile? And you get over to chapter 9 and verse 1. You're told why they were sent into exile. And Judah was taken into exile into Babylon because they broke faith with the Lord. 
There's two sets of exiles. If you don't know your Bible chronology, there's two sets of exiles. We ran across the first one last week when it's the Assyrian exile. That was all the northern tribes. In 721 B.C., the northern tribes were taken off into exile. Well, the southern tribes, primarily Judah, but some of Levi and Benjamin and a little bit of Simeon stayed in the south, and they kind of hit and miss in being faithful but continued to be more and more faithless. Then finally, in 605 B.C., over 100 years later, the new world superpower, Babylon, comes in and takes them into exile. And why did they go to exile? Because they broke faith with the Lord. Why does God keep bringing this up? Does he have an issue? Right? Does he have a problem? He keeps coming around to this over and over again. Has he got obsessions? No, it's here because it's a reminder of their culpability. My friends, it's just like what Jesus did with Peter. Peter didn't set, uh, Jesus didn't set up that situation just to be mamby-pamby. He set it up to bring up memories. He brought it up, he set the situation up and asked him three times, do you love me, to go back over that open wound in Peter's heart so that way he could finally apply the remedy. Yes, Peter, you know. I'm going I'm to go through these three again. So you know you betrayed me. You know you didn't follow through with your word. And I'm addressing it. But I'm restoring you. He does that once. I'm restoring you. He does it twice. I'm restoring you. He does it three times. It's a reminder of Peter's culpability. It's what a gracious God does. It's what good parents do with their kids. It's a reminder of culpability. Now, look, it's not meant to kick a good man down, right, when he's down, right? No, already you got a problem with that statement. It's not meant to kick a good man when he's down. It's not meant to shove someone back into their defeated past. It's a reminder. Just like when we were reading that double episode with Reuben Gad and half of Manasseh last week, it's a reminder that hot mess that we just came out of, that we've been in for multiple generations, that hot mess we just came out of was of our own making. We're the ones at fault. No blame shifting is allowed. No victim mentality is permitted. Well, what's the goal behind God bringing up this reminder? Well, the goal has been and has always been and will always be A genuine change of heart. You can't change your heart if you think that you're you're excusable. You You won't change your heart if you think you're the victim. You won't change your heart if you're busy shifting the blame and making excuses. So the goal is genuine change of heart, genuine change of direction, genuine confession and repentance. And you know that's what he's after because we're going to get to that very climactic verse in 2 Chronicles 7, 14 one day, and you will understand it even better. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their, what? Wicked way. They've got to know it was their wicked way before they can turn from it. Do you get it? Do you see what I'm, I'm saying here? 
That's why this reminder of culpability. And notice God's promise. And they turn from their wicked way. Then I will hear from from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. The goal is exactly what that 10-year-old boy experienced. To come back to clear-headedness. And to find his way and our way back into the arms of love that were always there. But the Spirit-inspired chronicler aids those to whom he's writing to in recalling the capstone of their history. And that's really all of chapter 7, chapter 8, and the very first sentence in chapter 9, verse 1. Right? And it's not just those three chapters, those two chapters, but it's also some of the chapters he's already written beforehand. All of this fullness in these chapters... This is the capstone. These are the glory years. These were the decades and the centuries of growth and large numbers and gaining more and more turf for God's kingdom of glory. Right? That's what all those nine chapters are really laying out is look how well off you were because God blessed you and gave you bigger and bigger part of His kingdom. And look at how successful you were. You were filling out. You were filling up. You were... You were flush happy. What's a good thing? So all the tribes of Israel, as you look at chapter 7 and 8, all the tribes of Israel were filling out and filling up. There was Issachar, there was Benjamin, Naphtali, half of Manasseh, the other half of Manasseh, Ephraim, Asher. Oh, and we're back to Benjamin again in chapter 8 to show the connection to Saul, which will be very important later. Zebulun's not mentioned in 7 and 8, but it is mentioned several times in chapter 6. And as I was putting this together, I had to stop for a moment because I've always had this question in my head. Why was Dan not mentioned? Dan, the tribe of Dan, is not mentioned anywhere in chapter 6, 7, or 8. Dan is not mentioned. In fact, my friends, it's very interesting. The one tribe that consistently is missing, though it'll show up later in chapter 12 and 28, showing that Dan was fully engaged in God's kingdom, but why is, it consist- why is the tribe of Dan consistently missing? I mean, those of you who did that re- uh, Revelation study, you ladies who did the Revelation study, you remember maybe that Revelation 7, it's the only tribe missing in the list of the tribes of the 144,000. Dan is the only one missing. And you go, what in the world is that all about? And that's a great question to have. It's an odd absence And there's nothing definitively stated, so I'm going to give you an educated guess because I think it fits what's going on in 1 Chronicles, for example. It may have everything to do with what you see when you go back to Judges 17 and 18. You may remember the story. There's a Levite who is uh, enlisted to help Micah worship an idol in the name of Yahweh. Anybody remember this? Well, Dan is the only tribe mentioned as having met him. They pulled up stakes in the boundary God gave them, in this area that God gave them. It says, and then Dan got up and moved to a totally different area. And as they were moving there, they found this Levite, an apostate Levite, an idol-worshiping Levite, early on in Israel's history. And they said, you be our priest. And then they skedaddled with him up and set up their their own boundaries. They set up their own turf with their own 
Levites. And now you come to 1 Chronicles 6 and Dan's nowhere mentioned as the Levites are spread throughout the land. You go, oh my goodness. Did they reject the Levites and only want their one Levite? I mean, do you see what I'm saying? It's like, oh, they're the beginning. Potentially, they're the beginning of all of Israel's apostasy and breaking faith. It's possible. It's an educated guess. Nonetheless, the reason for these two chapters, 7 and 8, and that first sentence in verse, uh, chapter 9, is to help the returnees. Remember, he's writing to these uh, later generations, these returnees that are coming out from underneath Persia to remind them, to recall for them the capstone, the high point of the kingdom of God. Why would he do that? Well, on the one hand, it brings them to see how far they have fallen by their own devices. On the other hand, there's a hopefulness there. It goads them onward, upward, and outward with it doesn't always have to be this way that you're experiencing now. It doesn't always have to be the way that you're experiencing it now. It's been better before. Let that encourage you. Which then leads the writer in chapter 9, verses 2 through 9, to bring up refreshing connections. So chapter 9, verses 2 through 9, he goes on to start talking about these waves of returnees. And the very first generation of waves of returnees is in verse 2. Now the first to dwell again in their possession in their cities were Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and some of the people of Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, Manasseh. And it goes through and it lays it out. Here was the first generation to return a hundred years earlier or so. And they come back, chapter 9, verse 2, into their, their possessions, into their cities. And notice it's not a big group. It's a small remnant of God's people. If you add up all the numbers that are there, it's not very big at all. Probably a little over a thousand. But they began to return. And if you've read Ezra and Nehemiah, you realize they came in waves, wave after wave. Little groups after little groups coming in waves. Now, why would the chronicler, why would this historian be putting this here? Part of the emphasis is to show to the generation that he is writing to, to show them that they are part of this long stream, this slow stream of God's people that have been returning. You're part of the return. Yeah, you may have come over a hundred years later. You may feel like a Johnny come lately, but you belong. You're part of it. I don't know, has anybody ever been in a situation where you knew you would never be a part of a group? My first church was in a rural city in, in Mississippi, and everybody in that city, their family roots go clear back to, uh, I think when Adam and Eve or something. It was, I mean, just generations deep, Right? The moment came, I was being introduced as a minister. I'd been there three years. Anna and I and the kids had been there for three years. I'm being introduced at a wedding at the church by my main elder, and he's talking to one of the other family members who's just come back for the wedding. He says, oh, this is our pastor, Mike Philibert, but he's not one of us. I mean, it's hard not belonging, Right? And so, do you hear what he's doing here? He's encouraging these returnees to see that they're part of this return. They actually do belong. But it's also meant to tell those who were already there 
These people who are Johnny-come-latelys, they belong. You belong together. So you have a heritage that you're a part of, even if you don't feel like it. And so the chronicler is refreshing this important connection because, as we used to always say, united we stand, and divided we fall. You belong. And my friends, this is Pentecost Sunday where the ascended Lord pours out His Holy Spirit in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He pours out the Spirit and He connects God's people together. To do what? To be a united voice and a united company. I don't know about you, but this, I was delighted to preach on this today because it's a great Pentecost sermon. Or at least a portion of it. The point should ring clear for us. It should ring clear for us. That refreshing connection. But further then, and with greater focus, notice that the historian, the chronicler, the editor is nailing down the significance of the priestly coupling. Anybody know what a coupling is? You know, when you join two pipes together, there's a piece in the middle that's the coupling, so it all flows through Right? The restoring the priestly coupling. And it's all of chapter 6 and chapter 9, verses 10 through 34. Chapter 6 is before the exile. Chapter 9, 10 through 34 is in the return from exile. So notice back in chapter 6 that the priestly ministerial clan gave the leadership which acted like the glue that holds God's people together extensively through history, but also, as you look at chapter 6, expansively, expansively throughout its territory. Now more is going to be said on this when you get to chapters 23 through 29. It's really kind of a centerpiece of First and Second Chronicles, or at least First Chronicles. But the hints are all in place here. The ministerial clan, Levi... They tie together the people of God to the God of the people. Which means that their task is also to tie together the people of God to the people of God. And so they help to craft and to cultivate the people's identity and self-awareness as the people of God. And they spread and they fortified the centrality of Yahweh to the people of Yahweh as is seen in the fact that one of their central roles is wrapped up in the tabernacle and in the temple. And then their dispersion throughout all the territory of Israel, throughout all of the territories of God's special dominion, is for the purpose of cementing the instructions of God to the hearts of the people of God. In other words, the Levites were always meant to be, and most of the times they did this, were living signposts pointing to the faithful, freeing God. So when you come back to chapter 9, that's the point of the returning exiles. It's subtle, but it's unmistakable. They need this ministerial leadership in place. This, too, is the way forward. This, too, is the way to be reclaimed, revived, reformed, and returned. 
No matter what the present situation looks like, this is the way of returning to the ancient paths where the good way is, where you will find rest for your souls, quoting God's words in Jeremiah 16, or 6, 16. Which is why, when you get to chapter 9, verse 22, is it's showing again the place of the Levites. It says in verse 22, um, they were enrolled by genealogies in their villages, David and Samuel the seer, David the, David the king, the Messiah, and the prophet Samuel. So already you're thinking, oh, maybe this is by God's direction. Yes. David and Samuel the seer established them in their office of trust. The idea is for these returnees who are coming back out of exile once more to come to recognize the importance, the important place of godly leadership. And so all of these details are about the return and the restoration of the Levi clan and their division of labor and their distribution among the people of God. And it's a solid clue that good leadership is deeply significant for reclaiming, reviving, reforming, returning the people of God to the God of the people. Are you ever going to stop, Mike? Yes, we're coming to a conclusion. But I want you to stay with me because I'm going to pull all this together now. Though this section is rather wordy and overwhelming in its size, nevertheless, the simple emphasis runs through it. The application has everything to do with coming to our senses and running back into the arms of love that have always been open to His people. It has everything to do with reviving, reforming, returning, and so forth. It's all part of that important theme I've been hammering out The 2020 theme. Okay, here, kids, I need you to help me. Get your 2020 goggles on, your 2020 lenses on. Ready? 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 20, right? 2020, so you can see clearly. Some of you need to see better than others, right? So see clearly now. Come on, give me your 2020. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. It's all part of that emphasis. And so what you see in these chapters actually applies to us. Yes, it applies congregationally. Yes, it applies socially. Yes, it applies denominationally. But it also applies very much personally. First, my friends, revival, reformation, restoration really begin when we stop looking to fatalistic causes for our troubles. When we stop looking to fatalistic causes for our troubles, when we come to own and acknowledge our own role in our trouble and come to see how we may well have made things worse, it's easy to point the finger at everybody else. It's almost impossible for us to actually look in the mirror and go, oh, we may have been a part of the problem. And so, don't wallow in your misery like someone who has no sense of direction and purpose. Own up to it. If you don't remember anything else in the sermon, go back and read John 21, 15 through 19. And Peter's restoration came as he had to deal with 
his own part in the problem, and Jesus brought him there. And once that has happened, then number two, recall the good that God has done. Recall the endurance that God has given. Recall the success that God has bestowed. Get out of your dark pit and turn the eyes of your heart to God's steadfast love that endures forever. Remember. Remember how His steadfast love once worked. Once worked out in your life. Remember how God's steadfast love once worked out in your church. Remember how God's steadfast love once worked out in your family. Remember the goodness of God from the past. But, my friends, don't look back on them for for the glory days and dwell on it and wish you could go back. You can't go back. And as the preacher says in Ecclesiastes 7, say not, why were the former days better than these? It is not from a heart of wisdom that you asked this. Instead, what you're to do, you look back to God's faithfulness and the plenty he gave us and his endurance and his steadfast love that endures forever. And you look back to those glory days to do what? To learn from those glory days. To help us move upward and onward and outward. Well, this is how God acted in the past. This is the way those things worked out. And we want that to happen again. And what do we learn from that as we move forward into this new season of American history? If nobody's paying attention to what I'm talking about, let me help you. What what do we learn from back then for this new season of our church's life or our denomination's existence? That's the idea. You recall the past. So it helps you for the future. Thirdly, refresh your connections to the people of God. To the people of God from the past years. We Presbyterians like to do that a lot. We like to read the Puritans and early Reformers. But to, to refresh your connections to the people of God in the past. But also refresh your connections to the older believers who are still here, who are doing ministry long before you were a twinkle in your daddy's eye. Refreshing connections even with those older believers who are doing ministries long when you were just a baby Christian. Reconnect. Don't pull away. If you don't know this, We live in a moment in history, at least in America, that people are making money in dividing you. Right? And it's not necessarily sinister, they're just after money. So they're advertising, for example, to make money, will divide you. There's Gen X, Gen Z, boomers, millennials. And that's why you get commercials like it's not your father's Oldsmobile. Do you not hear it? That's divisive. Right? It's meant to slice us and dice us so they can make money. But we have politicians doing the same thing. We have Christian churches doing the same thing. Right? Don't pull away. Don't put up the barriers and blockades like the rest of our world is doing. Don't, let me put it a different way. Don't become worldly and put up these barricades and blockades like, okay, boomer, or snowflake. 
That's being worldly. You're acting just like the world. Instead, plug in deep into this stream, into this heritage. Come together, pull together. Never forget, united we stand. Come on, help me. United we stand, divided we fall. Why do you think the devil wants you divided? United we stand, divided we fall. Lastly, see how important and restored and reforming the leadership is. Specifically, the leadership, a leadership that ties you together. Not a leadership that's ready to divide at the drop of a hat. Not a leadership that is willing to factionalize you and say, well, now you just come talk to me. You don't need to talk. You don't need to trust those people because they don't have your best interest, but I have your best interest. Come over here, right? You don't need that kind of leadership. But a leadership that actually ties together. A leadership that crafts and cultivates your self-awareness as the people of God. A leadership that spreads and fortifies the centrality of your faithful, freeing God, even most, most pointedly, who leads you into Trinitarian worship. A leadership that helps to cement the instructions of God to your heart. A leadership that is a living signpost to Jesus. A leadership that actually shops in the same stores you shop in, lives in some of the same neighborhoods, sweats with you on mission trips or VBSs, weeps with you in the dark times, and laughs with you in the joyful times. Not a leadership that is detached and far away and speaks from on high, but a leadership that is actually shaped by our Lord Jesus Christ and His incarnation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, and what? Dwelt among us. A Pentecost leadership that ties us together to be one voice and one company. And all of this is an important part of being clear-headed and coming back into the arms of love that have always been there. Well, finally, dear friends, thinking of that last note about leadership, I remind you that this is the final Sunday for officer nominations. Godly leadership is one of God's means of grace in a highly graceless society in which we now live. Godly leadership is a means of God's grace in this highly graceless life. And godly leadership is the instrumental in reclaiming our hearts and fostering revival of our faith and reforming us and returning us to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for what we've read. As we think about what's going on there, Lord, as we think about absence, like the absence of the tribe of Dan, as we think about the need to be plugged into each other and not divided like the rest of the world and act like worldly people who love to divide to be closer together because of what you have done for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the reminder about good, godly leadership and its role and its value. 
So as we prepare to wrap up our officer nominations this, this week, guide us in those nominations for our good and for your glory. And I pray for all of us that we would come to recognize our own culpability in some of our issues and difficulties. And we would quit sloughing it off onto somebody else and saying it's because of them that this is happening. Whether it's in our marriages, whether it's in our churches, whether it's in our denomination of your church, we would come to be reminded of our culpability and know that that reminder is still redemptive And you showed us that when you restored Peter. All this, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.